remain standing for our gospel lesson, which is also the sermon text for today from the end of John 7. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why have you not brought him? The officers answered, No man ever spoke like this man. Then the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. And everyone went to his own house. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, help us to treasure your word more today than we did yesterday through your spirit working through your word and we ask this in Jesus name amen please be seated that moment at the end of the feast of tabernacles when Jesus stood up and he cried out if anyone thirsts Let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That moment was one of the greatest moments in this Gospel. Really one of the greatest moments in world history. In that moment, Christ, the God-man, the Savior of the world, offered Himself as the water that can satisfy fully and forever. Jesus is the only water that can quench your thirst. He's the only one who can satisfy your deepest longings. And He offers to do so fully and forever. This image of the water and the rivers and running in and through our hearts and the truth behind the image especially should overwhelm us with joy with hope. Jesus can meet all of our needs. We are a needy people. Humanity is needy. We are born needy. And as we saw last week, Christ not only says that He is our satisfaction, He also says that when He satisfies, He makes it possible for you to then bring satisfaction to others, or really Him bringing satisfaction to others through you, using you as an instrument. 
Verse 38, whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water out into the world. What was the effect of this remarkable statement on those who heard it that day? What effect has it had on your life? Christ's dramatic declaration there in verses 37 and 38 immediately brought division, as we see in our text today. Jesus becomes the great divider in today's passage. Look at verses 40 to 42. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, particularly verses 37 and 38, they said, truly, this is the prophet. Verse 41, others said, this is the Christ. Some said, Will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem where David was? So here we see three different opinions, three different reactions about who Jesus is. Some thought He was the prophet that Moses predicted back in Deuteronomy 18. An important passage to to know. On the plains of Moab, outside the land of Canaan, Moses promised the Israelites that God would give them, would raise up for them another prophet like him. The promise of Moses is recorded in Deuteronomy 28. And in Acts 3, we see the fulfillment of it in Jesus because Peter declares in his sermon in Acts 3, that the prophet Moses was talking about is, in fact, Jesus Christ. Many of the Jews seem to realize this. Many of the Jews at the feast, at the festival, tabernacles, seem to realize this because they said this truly is the prophet. The one Moses was talking about back in Deuteronomy 18. Maybe they were reminded of this, their because they just heard Jesus talk about the the water and the water that God provided through Moses was an important thing, an event that happened back in the first five books of Moses in the history of Israel in the desert. So they think, oh, this, this, this guy's the prophet. This is the one that Moses was talking about. Verse 41, though, others said, this is the Messiah. Now, what many, maybe even most, first century Jews thought was that the prophet to come and the Messiah to come were two different people. They didn't realize that the prophet to come and the Messiah to come would be the same person. So some were saying that it's the prophet. Others were saying, no, it's the Messiah. Well, it turns out that he is both. But then there are some naysayers. Some were saying that Jesus is just any old regular guy. After all, they reason, the Messiah was supposed to come from David. In particular, he's, he's going to come from Bethlehem, where David was. And yet everyone knows that Jesus was a northerner from Galilee. There's no way he can be the Christ. Of course, John knows and he knows that his readers know 
that their logic is misinformed because Jesus did come from Bethlehem. That's where he was born. That's why Matthew and Luke are uh, go out of their way to tell us this. This reminds us of how little most people knew about Jesus while he was on the earth. We we can't imagine anyone not knowing that Jesus was born in the little town of Bethlehem because we have Matthew and Luke. But most of the Jews of Jesus' day didn't know this. And this is not the first time we will see John chuckling behind the scenes, as it were. John is known for his irony. Really, I think all the Gospel writers uh, are keen at developing irony, but John especially so, perhaps. And all through this passage today, he's going to be poking fun at the people who reject Jesus, especially the Jewish leaders. And they end up, they end up being as wrong as they are certain that they are right. Verse 43, so there was a division among the people because of Jesus. This division is no surprise to Jesus. He expected it. He knew his gospel message would cause deep division. He spoke about this more than once in the gospels. For example, listen to what he says in Luke 12, 51 and 52. Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? This is the Prince of Peace saying this. I tell you, not at all, but rather division. For from now on, five in one house will be divided. Three against two and two against three. Now, it's not that Christ wanted division. It's certainly not that he didn't ever plan on bringing peace. That's not what he's saying here. Division is not what God desires for his humanity. Man's divisions are the result of our sinful hearts, our fallenness, our unwillingness to repent and to bow the knee to King Jesus. Jesus is the Prince of Peace, but He is also Christ the Divider. Last year, I took my boys out west to a father-son retreat, and we went to Rocky Mountain National Park, and we got to see there the, the Continental Divide, also called the Great Divide. It goes all the way from the the Bering Strait up in Alaska down to the Strait of Magellan at the tip of South Africa. Now, in Rocky Mountain Park, there's a sign that straddles the Continental Divide. And according to this sign, all the water that falls to the left of the sign eventually drains into the Atlantic Ocean. And all the water that falls to the right of the sign eventually drains into the Pacific Ocean, except for a little bit of the water that lands in basins and stays there. Now, so when snow descends on the continental divide, it melts and flows off either to the left or to the right. The great divide splits water and sends some water this way and some water that way. They go in vastly different, they end up in vastly different places, either to the left or to the right. Well, Christ was the continental divide in Israel. 
Israel had been falling, as it were, for 2,000 years ever since God called Abraham. And now Israel had finally descended on to the great divide. It was the moment of truth in Israel's history. When you land on Christ the divider, you go one way or the other. Either to the left forever or to the right forever. And Christ was not just Israel's continental divide. He's the great divider of the whole world. The whole of humanity. At the end of history, Christ will be the great divider who puts some on His left hand and some on His right hand forever. Those on His right will be those who come to Him and drink of Him. Those on His left will be those who found their satisfaction elsewhere. They never developed a thirst for Jesus. Those on His right will be those who believed in Him and had rivers of living water flowing into them and out of their hearts. Those on His left will be like the people in verse 44. They will have spent all their lives wishing that Jesus were dead instead of submitting their lives to Him. They'll bow the knee one day to be sure, but it won't save them. It'll be too late. Now before we look at verse 45 here, we need to remember what's going on. We need to remember the context. Earlier in John 7, Jesus had appeared in the temple about midway through the Feast of Tabernacles. He showed up where there was a bunch of people and He started teaching. He started teaching. He started confronting. He said some controversial things. And in response, the temple authorities sent officers to apprehend him. These would have been Levites to arrest him. Look back up at verse 32 real quick. The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him. And the Pharisees and the chief priests, who didn't usually get along, sent officers to take him. But, but remember, verse 32 left us hanging last time. We aren't told right away what happens with these officers who are sent on this mission to apprehend Jesus. By the time we get to verse 45, the festival is all but over. So a few days have gone by. And it's time for these officers to report back to the chief priests and the Pharisees. Verse 45 says, Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees and said to them, and they, the Pharisees said to them, Why have you not brought him? Where's Jesus? Why are you empty handed? Now, if we didn't have verse 46, we would never be able to guess what these officers say in response. We would expect them to make excuses, to cover their backside. A likely response might have been to point out that the crowds would have rioted if Jesus had been arrested. Something like that. But that's not what we get. The response in verse 46 is really the hinge of this passage. The officers answered, No man ever spoke like this man. 
That should give us chills if we're reading it right. These people sent to arrest Jesus come back to the authorities and have the audacity to say that the reason they're empty-handed is no one speaks like this man. Not even you guys. No one has the authority, the gravity that this guy has, teachers of Israel. No man ever spoke like this man. I like how the New King James capitalizes the letter M in the second man in verse 46 there. The real reason the officers came back empty-handed is that they were overwhelmed by the presence of Christ and His Word. They went to arrest Jesus, but His words arrested them. They went to put hands on Jesus, but His words put a spell on them. That's because His words are the words of the, of the living God. They're the living and active words of the living and active God. No less. So we see a little bit uh, into the, the minds and the character, maybe the personality of these officers. They weren't brutal thugs, obviously. They weren't like Roman soldiers who were conditioned to perform any, uh, any act that they were commanded to do, no matter how awful or extreme. They weren't like mercenary soldiers who were trained to perform any act no matter how extreme, if they were paid enough money. The temple officers were Levites. They were religiously trained people. Religiously trained temple servants. And they could feel themselves being torn apart at the deepest level by the same words that were tearing apart the population at large. For these temple officers... The words of the great divider, Jesus Christ, were proving to be alive and active and sharper than any two-edged knife, penetrating even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and judging the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. That's the experience to some degree of these Levitical temple officers. No human being ever spoke like this man because this man is no mere human being. He is God in the flesh. And every word that he speaks is a revelation of his Father. Now when these empty-handed Levites say no one ever spoke like this man, the Pharisees, as we would expect, exploded with a shower of words. Let's look at verses 47 and 48. Then the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Give me a break. Have any, do you know any rulers or Pharisees that are believing in Jesus? Now according to the Pharisees, no one of any account spiritually or academically has ever believed in Jesus. That's their, that's their assumption. That's their starting point. That's their assertion. 
Only members of the elite can understand the deep things of life. And none of the elite believe in Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, it's because you're deceived. But who is really deceived in this story? We're going to see in a moment who the deceived ones are very clearly. Now in verses 47 and 48, the Pharisees are not mocking these officers for failing to follow orders. They're mocking them for compromising their theological integrity. They're mocking these Levites for being seduced by an imposter, Jesus, who would never be able to deceive a real thinker. What's funny about this, of course, is that one of the Pharisees, one of their own, even a primary figure among Pharisees is about to step forward on behalf of Jesus. Everything the Pharisees say is contrary to the gospel, contrary to truth. But their boasting is especially flagrant. According to the, to the gospel, not many wise and noble are chosen. God makes it a practice to go after who? The weak, the foolish, the ignorant, the despised. In verse 49, the Pharisees go on to say, this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. You see how condescending they are? It was actually common in this, at this time for rabbis, for Jewish leaders to speak of the, the common people, the people of the land condescendingly in this way. They didn't know the Scriptures like we do. They didn't know the traditions as we do. So this crowd is in a confusion about Jesus not only because they don't know the law, they haven't been trained, but also because they're under God's curse. Pharisees are putting themselves forward as the only ones who understand the law and the only ones, it seems, who are not under God's curse. They really understand the law. And who is really cursed in this story, under God's curse in this story? We're going to see as John develops his comedy. Then Nicodemus speaks up after they assert that boldly. Verse 50, Nicodemus, who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? You can bet that this infuriated them. They answered and said to him, are you also from Galilee? Again, give me a break. Not you too. Search and look, the, look at the Scriptures, Nicodemus. No prophet has arisen out of Galilee. So they're, they're losing a grip here. And this whole story is designed in part. It's got many designs and purposes. It's multi-layered theologically and literarily. But one of the designs is to poke fun at the Pharisees. Now, you'll need to pay attention here uh, to see what's going on. Everything from verse 46 on 
exalts Jesus and humiliates the Pharisees. John is putting the God-haters in their place. Remember, what's the first thing that the Pharisees say to the empty-handed temple officers? Up in verse 47, the Pharisees assure these officers that no Pharisee has ever or would ever believe in Jesus. But then, down in verse 50, Nicodemus, who is a Pharisee, he is the teacher of Israel, Jesus says in John 3. And John emphasizes that Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He, he in the parentheses there, says he's one of them. He, he's, John's making a point here. The Pharisee Nicodemus speaks up <clears throat> on behalf of Jesus and demonstrates that at least this Pharisee This prominent Pharisee, no less, is beginning, perhaps, to believe in Jesus. It's hard to know for sure whether Nicodemus is a born-again believer in Jesus at this point. But at the very least, the Spirit seems to be working in him and and drawing him. And he is standing up for Jesus. Perhaps he is beginning to see Jesus. The light. And we do know that by the time Jesus goes to the cross, which is only about six months from now, Nicodemus the Pharisee is a devout follower of Jesus who helps his other followers bury Jesus, prepare his body for burial in the tomb. Up in verse 49, the Pharisees accuse the crowd of, know, of not knowing God's law and being under God's curse. But down in verse 51, the teacher, Nicodemus, has to remind his fellow Pharisees what God's law actually teaches. Remember Deuteronomy 1.16, Then I commanded your judges at that time, saying, Hear the cases between your brethren and judge righteously between a man and his brother. Nicodemus knows that God's law upholds righteous judgment. So the Pharisees are wrong about no Pharisee believing in Jesus. Or at least they will be soon. And they're wrong about who doesn't understand the law. But there's more. They're also misguided in their final comment in verse 52. They sarcastically say to Nicodemus, are you also a Galilean? Search the Scriptures. Look hard, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. But that's just not true. The Pharisees are so upset, they hate Jesus so much that it's clouding not just their heart, but their mind, and they forget their own history. The prophet Jonah, as well as the prophet Nahum, Both sprang from Galilee. They surely would have known this in one of their more sober moments. The Pharisees don't know their law. They don't know their history or they forget it. And they don't know their hearts. And they know none of these things because they don't know Jesus. They think they're the wise ones, which is evidence that they don't know God. Because God 
rejects man's wisdom and chooses the foolish things of the world. When Jesus speaks, he sounds different from everyone else, from every other man, from every other human who has ever lived in the world because his wisdom and power are not of this world. This story is an example of the kind of thing that Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 1. Turn in your Bibles, flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and let's look at how the power and the wisdom of God destroys the power and the wisdom of the world. 1 Corinthians 1, we'll start in verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men until Jesus returns he will continue to destroy the wisdom of the wise as he does at the end of John 7. He will continue to bring to nothing the so-called understanding of the so-called prudent. And if you belong to Jesus, God will continue to destroy all of the human wisdom that's inside of you. Paul says that you don't get to know Jesus through wisdom. Your wisdom will only blind you as it blinded the Pharisees. No, you get to know Jesus through the foolish and weak cross. By by hanging out there at the foot of the cross, by fixing your eyes on Jesus, Jesus, the crucified one. The cross, which is wiser and stronger than men. If the wisdom that you've arrived at sounds a lot like the wisdom that you hear in the world, that you can pick up in the world, then it's not Christ's words that you're hearing. Because when Jesus speaks, It doesn't sound like anything else that you've heard. It's different. Fundamentally different. It's opposite. 
No one speaks like Jesus. No man ever has. No man ever will. There's a test you can run to determine whether you're thinking or hearing from Jesus. It's, it's the cross test. The wisdom of the wise is to live for yourself, to have as much fun as you can, to follow your passions, to seek comfort, convenience, prosperity. But the voice of Jesus will always be telling you to deny yourself, to live for others, to take up your cross, to follow Christ in dying to yourself for the sake of God's kingdom, for the sake of the world, for the sake of others. When a person who is not called by God, as Paul puts it, when a person who is not called encounters the message of Jesus, the message of the cross, the good news, he will respond with the hatred and the stupidity of the Pharisees. And that's what it is. When a person who is, who is called by God encounters the message of Jesus, he will be arrested by what Paul calls the foolishness of the Gospel. And he will recognize that no human being ever spoke like Jesus. He will recognize that the foolishness and the weakness of God, as it were, if there were such a thing, is wiser and stronger than the best that man has to offer. Christ is the great divider. He is either everything to you or nothing. Those who drink from the fountains of secularism of the world will be unfilled and empty forever. <clears throat> but those who drink of Christ will be filled and overflowing forever. They'll never thirst. The last thing these empty-handed officers heard Jesus say before they said no one ever spoke like this man. The last thing they heard Jesus say was if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Those of us, those of you who become drinkers of the water that only Jesus can give will have vitality and power in your lives. But to drink this spiritual water that only Jesus can offer you must realize how thirsty, how desperate, how needy, how empty you are. You must realize the vacuous nature of your soul apart from Christ. <clears throat> you see, the Pharisees weren't thirsty, or they didn't realize how thirsty they were. They were full of themselves. Their pride had blinded them to their spiritual poverty. They couldn't see Jesus for the well and the feast that He is. They couldn't see His words for the spirit and life that they are. Every day, each one of us hears a lot of words. 
the nature of being a human in society. You hear words spoken by the people that you live with, by the people you work with, people you go to school with, people that you meet in the marketplace, people you play with. You hear people speak on podcasts, on the internet, on the radio, on the TV. You hear and read as well tens of thousands of words every week. Are you making sure to expose your soul to the living words of Christ? When you hear and read the simple, oftentimes non-flashy, even foolish-sounding words of Jesus, you get something that you don't get when you read or listen to the wisdom of all the wise people out there on the internet vying for your eyes and your ears. If you want rivers of His living water running out of your heart, and who doesn't? Who doesn't want rivers of His living water running out of their heart? If you want that, you've got to have rivers of his living word flowing into your heart. You can't squeeze blood from a turnip. And you can't get water out of a dry heart that never hears Jesus speak. No one speaks like Jesus. The words of Christ are as unique as the person of Christ. They're like no other words because no other words in the universe or in the history of the world impart life. All other words are dead compared to the living and active words of Jesus. So what is keeping you from feasting on the words of Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for all your words, for not being a silent God. Help us to love your words, to find our life in your words, to treasure them, to feast on them, to hide them in our hearts, to know them and to live them out. Oh God, may your spirit work in us a desire to read and hear your living words more than we do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.